0: but is under-guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, "Abba, Father! therefore you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir of god through christ
1: thank you michael so if you remember a couple of weeks ago as we've been studying i think it took us two or three weeks just to go through chapter three we talked about how chapter three is kind of this one big theological argument talking about that you know it's telling you know, the children of the promise and the jews that they weren't saved because they were the bright bloodline they were saved because of their faithfulness to god and so he, he he gives this little illustration here that he starts off chapter four I think really I would group this with chapter three if they asked me, but they didn't. It's okay. Um, but it, it's really an illustration of what he's been talking about in chapter three, and so he doesn't just say this out of nowhere. He he says really that the law was kind of like a guardian, and uh, if you think about just the the culture he's writing to, you know, they, especially if you think about the Greeks, they the Romans. They had Caesar. It was a very Uh, very much a bloodline, a dynasty. That's what I was looking for. So you know, if the ruler died, his son was in charge. Even if his son was like eight, well, they would be under a guardian or an heir until they came of age. And Paul says the law was kind of like that, that we we had not yet come of age even though we were still heirs or we were still sons. And he uses this phrase, and we'll kind of focus on this in terms of making application from this section, that he says, we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so the, uh, depending on your translation, I think it's elementary principles, uh, elemental spirits. Th- this phrase gets translated a lot of different ways, but the point there is, was this like Greek idiom uh, for essentially the foundational elements of the world, earth, wind, and fire, for those of you born in the 70s. Um, thank you, one person. <laughs> I like dancing in September, it's okay. Um, but he says, you know, you used to be enslaved to the basic things, but what should happen, and what happens with with the laws, when the fullness of time has come, God has sent His Son, and He says He has redeemed those who are under the law, that you might receive adoption as sons. And so, He's again just if we think about what we've been talking about for a couple weeks now, in terms of this this phrase, the children of Abraham and the promises of Abraham, this is Him just making an illustration of that. That you know, you used to be enslaved to the law but since christ has come you you have grown into fullness or you've grown to maturity and now you don't need to be under the law but you're you you are full heirs of god's promise and so he kind of his concluding sentence there you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through god and so he'll talk about here in a little bit what it means to be heirs of god um questions just on the first few verses of chapter four So we keep studying, we'll, uh, we've talked about the last couple of weeks that there's a lot, of, a lot of strange language in chapter 3, and that kind of continues in chapter 4. Uh, when we get to 5 and 6, we'll see if the application is a little bit simpler, and we'll probably move the, through those weeks a little bit quicker. But right here, it's, it's kind of some rich theology, mainly because, re- remember, he's addressing these, these Jews who do not want to accept the Gentiles as children of God. And so he's laying out a lot of theological arguments for why they should both be considered people of God. So any, any questions before we move on to our next section here? Okay, well, cool. So, we'll uh, try to see how we want to break this down. I think I'm going to go ahead and read for us because we're going to read It's from verse 8 to 20. We'll kind of take this as one big chunk, so I'll go ahead and read it. But uh, as always, we'll start by situated here we'll start by reading the text and then we'll just kind of talk about some things that might stand out to you guys or what kind of questions you have or what you thought was interesting or what you thought was unusual and then we'll flip through some of the slides and some of the notes i have in the last 15 minutes or so but go ahead and read for us uh, galatians 4 beginning in verse 8 formerly when you did not know god you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods but now that you have come to know god or rather to be known by god how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more you observe days and months and seasons and years i am afraid i have labored over you in vain brothers i entreat you become as i am for i also have become as you are you did me no wrong They want to shut you out so that you make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So, reflect on the rest of chapter 4 There, What stands out to you as we read through that?
0: There at the beginning, it says, you know, before you knew God and what he was, you worshipped the the false gods, the nature, the seasons, all that. And then saying, but even after we preach God to you and what he is and what he can do, you still decided to worship the seasons and everything. It's like, okay, you, had ex- you kind of had an excuse before, but now you don't.
1: Yeah, he says, if, you, if you've known God, why are you turning back to the things that you were turning to before you knew God? Why are you, like a dog to its vomit, I think, is uh, the proverb. Good. What else? There's a lot of odd phrases in this particular section. I want to, we'll talk about a little bit, verse 17 through 18, because I think that can be a little hard to follow depending on your translation there. What do you think he means when he says, become as I am, for I have become as you are? I want to, there's a couple different phrases in this section that I think can be really hard to dissect. And so I've, I I want to quote a couple other scriptures that might help us maybe understand this a little bit better. What, what verse would that be? Uh, become as I am, <coughs> uh, verse 12.
0: It possibly, sometimes when you're preaching uh, to people, you have to be able to read the person and approach them in a way that they are, can understand. Um, for example, the times, a lot of people were fishermen, and those the apostles that had that background could approach them easily because they had something in common. They had that common knowledge. Whereas, if you're going to somebody and you have no uh, knowledge of their background or where they come from it makes it a little bit harder to relate with them
1: i think that's certainly part of it when he says i have become as you are um i think of when he says you know to the weak i become weak to the strong i become strong i have become all things to all men does anyone know the rest of that verse when he says i have become all things to all men that i might save some And so in the same way when he says that there, he says, look, to the weak I become weak, to the strong I become strong, with the hope of of preaching to them the gospel. We talked about, uh, let's see, probably towards the end of chapter 2, when we talked about what value circumcision has or does not have among them, we looked at the example of, of Timothy in Acts. Where Timothy was with Paul when they were, you know, they had appealed to the apostles and they had resolved, well, what are we going to do with these, these people who are trying to make people a hold to these promises of the law? And we have these Gentiles who don't want to obey the law. What are we going to do? And they said, well, do you know, don't, don't worship idols. Don't take anything that has strangled and don't take blood that's been given to idols. But they say well, we won't make people be circumcised. Well, then right after that, right after Acts 15, Paul takes Timothy and he circumcises him. And he says, this is good. It's necessary for us for our ministry. And so I think that's really the same principle he's saying here. At least he's referencing as, as Michael, kind of as you mentioned, That he says, I have become as you are. And he said, look, I, I, I know the law. I, I would be obedient to the law if I thought it would reach you guys, if I thought it would get you to understand. And so he says, yes, I, I met you where you were. I, I came to you, again, like he says, I believe that's in 2 Corinthians, but I, I didn't write it down. But where he says, you know, to the Jew I become Jew, to the Greek I have become Greek. He's kind of saying the same thing here. That he's saying, look, I, I kind of came to you where you are. I taught you the gospel, but like, let's move on from that. Let's. And so he's saying, I wish you would become as I am. Um, we know Paul himself by studying the earlier in this letter and by looking at his example in Acts. He's, he's not somebody who tells people they have to keep hold of the law. If anything, remember just earlier in this letter we studied how he confronted Peter because Peter was saying that people need to be obedient to the old law and so Paul has said he's always fought this he's always fought back against these uh, these Judaizing influences we've called them and so he says I, I entreat you become as I am for I have also become as you are there's a, and I mentioned there's a couple different odd phrases here but if I could sum up just that the rest of that paragraph at least he says you know when, when you saw me when I first brought the gospel to you you didn't scorn me you didn't despise me But he says, rather you receive me as if an angel of God or even as you would have received Jesus. And we've heard him speak this before, that he was sent by God, not by men. Or he has the message of God, not of men. But he says, you received me as you should have. You received me well. When I was with you presently, you heard my message. You were obedient to it. You accepted it. Things were going well. But as we know, Paul left and these other influences came in. And so he says, so what has become of your blessedness? And he says, if, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. He says, when I was with you, you'd have done anything. You'd have done anything if I told you to do it. You, you were perfectly obedient to me when I was there. But he's saying, like, almost like we would talk about with a parent with their child. He says, the moment I turn around, you're back to doing exactly what you were doing before. What's, what's going on? He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? would underline this one because we're we'll probably gonna come back and, and talk about this when we talk about just making applications in this section. <coughs> I wanna oh we already talked about that. We've kind of recapped that from earlier. Meant to be clicking through this before, but here's just some of the noticeable stuff we've been talking about here. I wanted to read it, just show you another translation of these, this verse 17 through 18, because I think the phrasing is kind of weird. And so I have this, this is from the CSB, But they court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. Uh, I think other translations talk about zeal or zealously pursuing, or they are zealous for you that you might be zealous for them. And Essentially, what... Uh, what I would kind of put it, as I've heard somebody say before, you know, put that in cornbread, with that expression? He says, they're buttering you up. They're blowing smoke up your backside. He said, they're telling you whatever it is you want to hear. But he said, are, are you hating me because I'm telling you the truth? Are you hating me because the message I'm trying to bring you is hard because it's it's difficult for you? And he says, of course they're telling you all these nice things. They want you to think very highly of them. And again, he's talking about, if you remember all the way back in... In chapter 2, when we were talking about the context of this letter, those Judaizing influences that the, the Galatians church has become subject to in Paul's absence. And so he's saying those other people, those false teachers, he's saying they make much of you but for no good purpose, or they are zealous for you for no good purpose, because they want you to think highly of them. They, they, they want you to think that they're knowledgeable. They want you to think that they have the authority, so they're going to tell you all these nice things in sort of puff you up and blow smoke and just sort of make you feel good but he says it's for me and this is why i think he reminds them of what he's done when he was with them he says you know remember when i was with you i you accepted my teaching things were going well we had a relationship things were great he says but have i now become your enemy by telling you the truth we've talked about uh i don't remember exactly which study it was probably on Sunday mornings when we talk about 2 Peter and Jude, but just the influences of false teaching. And it's no coincidence that false teaching always sounds good, right? Or else it wouldn't be so popular. <laughs> There's always a, a nugget of truth to it, or typically it's good news, it's, it's sweet like honey, but bitter in your stomach, I think is the expression one of those letters uses. When we talk about just applying this section... Can we make enemies of people by telling them the truth? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Some of you give a more vigorous yes than others, I noticed. But truth is not always hard to hear, easy to hear. And that's really what Paul's dealing with here. He's saying, look, out. and what's almost funny to me, just I guess as an outsider, is I, I would think— that if you have these Judaizing influences are telling you to keep the Mosaic law and you have to be circumcised and you have to observe all these feasts and you have to observe all these holy days, I would think that would be harder than what Paul is teaching them. Like I, I, To me, that keeping all the, most, all the different parts of the Mosaic law would be much harder than the gospel. But I think, I think in some way, and this is why he talks about going back to the weak and worthless principles of the world, sometimes even though it can seem harder, there's a comfort in just doing what you've always done, right? Sometimes even when a message is clearly true or you know it's beneficial or you know it's good for you, sometimes it's kind of easier to go back to what we've always defaulted in doing. Um, and I think there's a, a really strong message to, to what Paul's kind of getting at. That sometimes even, even when we want to make a change in our lives, or, and this is any kind of change, I mean, spiritual, physical, emotional, logistical, small changes to the big ones, uh, sometimes it's easy to change and then when things get hard, what do you do? Go right back to doing things the way you were doing before. There are things get stressful. The pressure's on. Sometimes you just you kind of default back to that way you've always been doing it. And so Paul is saying, D- don't do that. Don't turn back to these worthless principles that I I tried to rescue from, rescue you from with the gospel. That that verse that we kind of mentioned earlier, verse nine. That's kind of a callback to verse three in the chapter. It says you were enslaved to these when you were principal. When you you were enslaved to these principles when you were children, but but now that you have come to know God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless things? What else stands out to you from this this, chapter, this uh, section as we're reading it? So the gospel then
0: flags traffic for us, doesn't it? Do what? It's, it's ahead of us. If it sees something up the road of our life and it knows it can be dangerous to us because it takes the wrong road, it flags traffic.
1: That's Dangerous a good word, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: Be careful where you're going. Yeah, I would say That's so. what the gospel is saying to us.
1: Be careful what where you're going. Definitely. You know, watch how you walk is an expression we hear use all the time.
0: Sometimes it's even because of people coming toward us.
1: Yeah, sometimes the red flags They're are people. they bringing the wrong
0: thing. <laughs> That's what was in the scripture a lot. Yes. Right there. They were bringing the wrong message. And God flagged them off
1: yeah that's why he says you know if anyone brings to you a gospel of the one i am he flagged it off
0: through paul, the apostle paul writing yeah. the letters
1: that's true so um we'll kind of just go through there's no i guess just questions or things that jump out we'll kind of just go through this line by line and address some of the weirdness to it um you observe days and months and seasons and years anyone want to take a stab at what he's saying by that Kind of an odd phrase. I don't. I can't remember if we've studied this passage before or not. I don't think so. He's exactly. Actually, yeah. He's talking about the the holy weeks and the the, the certain set. Not just Sabbath days, but the holy days and the the harvest seasons and, and certain jubilee years and all those those traditions that the Israelites kept. Um, a lot a lot of theirs were based around their calendar. So it was certain days or certain months or certain things around the harvest or certain little things and again if we think of those judaizing influences they were coming in and saying no no, no no you need to do all this this and this, this to be holy you need to do all this this and this for salvation and he's saying you're going back and you're observing all these th- these holy days and these certain seasons and these these years and he says i'm afraid i have labored over you in vain which kind of goes back to the point we've been making really since chapter two and chapter three and that is that we are justified through our faith in our faithfulness to Christ and nothing else. So certainly, yes. Thank, thank you, yeah. Um, let's see, he talks about the, the condition of the trial. We kind of talked about 13, 14, and 15. The anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Well, that's a strange expression, is it not? <laughs> I had to read that one a couple different times when I first read it. My little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And of course, he, he concludes in verse 20 with uh, what Luis mentioned earlier, just with the letter of rebuke. And we see just that tone surfacing again. What do you think he's talking about when he talks about the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed? Could be blacker we reborn, we're born again become Christian and he is living with us I think I think that's definitely part of it um, there, there's that language right of, of birth and rebirth when, when he talks about that he's again in, in the anguish of childbirth I think of if you've ever well really if, if you've ever tried to teach somebody the gospel if you've ever tried to teach somebody uh, you know your faith and you're trying to get them along, Sometimes that process is not easy, and I would venture to say, in my experience, most of the times <laughs> that process is not easy. And if you think about why, at least again in my experience, especially, especially I would say in our uh, culture where people often have heard of God, you know, we're not preaching to just pagans who are worshiping idols who have no knowledge of the Bible ever before. In a way, our job is harder because we want to talk to people who who know God, who have heard of Jesus, who have heard of the Bible but they probably already have all their own thoughts about all those things. And so if you're trying to teach them the scripture, you can't just teach them the scripture. You kind of have to unteach them the things they think and the things they know. And so sometimes it's very hard. And you don't realize until you're getting into deeper study and you're really uh, struggling with them and you're, you're trying to teach them and you're trying to show them. And oftentimes, if you're trying to show somebody and they kind of have an idea of they think they know what it means, but you're trying to teach them maybe what the Bible says, what happens usually? Which, which one do they usually fall back on? They're all beliefs. So it's the same. It's really the same thing that's happening here that when Paul is trying to disciple the Galatians, is he says, "I I feel like I'm laboring in the anguish of childbirth again with you." And yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly what he's saying that that birth, rebirth, born again language.
0: You're trying to totally transform them into something different, and they're. I mean, nowadays you, it's hard to teach people because nobody wants to hear it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's. Uh, it's interesting. I think sometimes, that I think there are—I've I mean, said this before, but I—I th- I, I agree with you. I think it's very hard because people—they don't want to hear. It. But sometimes I think other times would have been better, or other generations, or other areas, or whatever it would have been easier. This, that, or the other. But I'm sure, I think it's the same thing about you know the benefits of our own situation because we've we've talked about it before just the access that we all have to the Bible that makes it easier in some ways but harder in others. I was reading. Definitely, I mean, we've talked about this before, that we have a responsibility, you know, go and make disciples, and it is hard. I caught up some of what you were saying. What did you say was the gift? What were you saying was the gift? Christ. Well, that's a good answer. He gave his son. Certainly, yeah. I guess I probably could have guessed that one. To rescue
0: us or redeem us, and that's what we need to tell others about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Receiving
1: Christ as new life is and that we need to pass on. Definitely. No. Hey, I can't disagree with that. No. Um I think of his Paul's language in some of his other letters where he talks about being dead to our old ways and, and you know, a new creation, but I think a lot of times We we want to have our feet in both worlds, you know. We want to maybe be asleep to our old ways. We don't want to totally die to them. (laughs) Another
0: another thing i think about two tech is it harder to teach someone who has very little comprehension, too much of God, or someone who has, like the Judaizer teacher, who should have known? Yeah.
1: You know, it's funny. I, I was—I think about that a lot. I was thinking about that with uh, Miss Linda's comment. Is uh, I don't think I've ever studied with anybody who really had no knowledge of the Bible.
0: But just make a minor or
1: just—yeah, you know, like
0: some comprehensive but not.
1: Yeah. You know. Most of most of the time when I talk to people, it's exactly what you're saying. With it, if I try to make comparison to other fields, I mean, learning math is not easy. But imagine teaching somebody math who is convinced that two plus two is six. <laughs> And three times three is twenty-seven, or something. You know, like it's it's the the concepts we're we're bringing are almost, in certain ways, I I don't want to say hard enough because I don't I don't feel like it's that hard. Maybe I'm biased, but it is life changing enough without without somebody already having to feel like they got it figured out for themselves, right? And I, I think I think you're right, especially as we've heard of maybe Paul's teachings against these influences before. Um, I believe it's 2 Corinthians that says knowledge puffs up but love builds up you know he says sometimes your knowledge gets in the way of your understanding (laughs) sometimes knowledge can get in the way of wisdom Um, and then he said really if you knew if you really had a knowledge that led to the love of Christ you would be able to resort this stuff out amongst yourselves but because of your knowledge it's actually keeping you from behaving the way you ought to towards each other and I think there's a little bit of that applying to, to some of those those legalistic influences who are trying to get all these people to behave a certain way and it, paul is paul is filling them up with knowledge and as soon as he leaves someone's coming in and pulling that out and filling their head up with new ideas and as you said about being transformed i think of uh i'm not gonna get it wrong but it's Rome. you know don't be conformed to the world be transformed by the new rule of your minds and and you're right that really um, and we talked about this when we first started this letter when we, looked, when we looked at I think really in the very very beginning in chapter 1 that the Galatians are in a situation where Paul has brought them the gospel but they are just so, so affected by all the other cultures around them and I think you, your point is well made that we really are in the same situation that, that well Lord, the way it is
0: now is people on the talk; they're scared to talk about it I mean, when I talk to my patients and stuff at work, they'll, I mean, it's an older generation. Mm-hmm. They do talk about God, and the first thing they say is, oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, please. But... yeah." And we'll sit there and talk. But, I mean, people are scared to say anything because of the way the world is now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and there's a, that's, that's a hard thing. Because there's a lot of different ways to go there, especially when you talk about, you know, Wanting to be the right example and wanting to do the right thing. Um, it's not easy on to meet someone who
0: has no idea. As an example, today, Mike, Mike started to work. He came in and his back was spasmodic and all, and he said he had spent the day talking to an atheist. Hmm. All day. And uh, so it was hard on him because it put a little extra.
1: Stressed him out just a little bit. I'd be interested in talking about that. You know, we, I think, and here's, I guess, just what I'm, from listening to both of y'all, sometimes I think about it is like, I think what's hard is, like you mentioned, it's not that people don't believe in God, because we're surrounded by plenty of people who don't believe in God, but unlike maybe some of the Roman audiences that Paul encounters, who, who just had never heard of this. A lot of people nowadays don't like they've heard of God. They've heard the story and they just don't believe it. And so there's already this, in the same, almost in the same way that like the Judaizers. If you come to somebody and you say, you know, let me tell you about what I believe, as soon as you say you're Christian, like, oh no, no, i I've, I've, I've already made up my mind on that whole thing, you know. And sometimes that's. Sometimes that's bad Christian examples that are in their lives. Sometimes that's just other voices that they that they feel like are other kind of drawing them away, other things that are convincing them. But sometimes, and this is, I guess, what I was thinking when uh, from what you were saying, how sometimes when we're spreading, when we're trying to we're trying to share the gospel with people, sometimes they get upset. And the unfortunate reality of that is, sometimes other Christians have upset them. <laughs> um, and that's unfortunately part of the world we live in, too. There's a, something very interesting is if you study just sort of the, the course that Christianity has gone through over the last you know roughly 2,000 years, whenever, whenever it is outlawed by the government, and this is true, I would say, for the most part globally across the last couple thousand years, whenever it's a situation where it's outlawed, it's almost like the church flourishes even stronger. Because it forces to go underground and and you get the most devout converts in situations like that and people are dying for some hope they want optimism they want freedom but over and over and over in a couple different time periods where it is allowed to flourish there's a fact uh i can't remember one christian commentary even says in a society where everyone is a christian no one is because he said once it becomes except and i understand it's not bible it's not a quote i'm not trying to say it's inspired but i think there's wisdom of that idea that once we live in a world where this idea of Christian is a label that a lot of people call themselves, well, now I'm not just, it's one thing for me to defend myself, and it's one thing for me to defend our reputation. Well, now I've got to defend the reputation of everybody who uses this label to apply themselves, and boy, uh, I'm, I'm putting out a lot of fires with somebody when I'm doing that, <laughs> you know? When I'm trying to answer for not just my own deeds and my own reputation and the the repu- I'm fine putting the reputation of our spiritual community on the line there. I'm fine with saying, you know what, I, I think our church is full of good Christian people who are doing the right thing. I'm, I'm fine with saying that, but a lot of times when I bring somebody, especially situations like you talk about where someone's got, where it's gonna upset them, that's probably because I'm now having to answer for everyone who has called themselves a Christian in their life and they've been hurt by somebody before. And so, unfortunately, and I, this is probably one of the things that consumes my thoughts a lot on evangelism, we live in a society where Christians have a negative reputation. Hebrews, and that's the truth.
0: Hebrews 6, chapter 6, verse 1, it's Therefore, I live the of the elementary of God, <laughs> that is strong to, perfect, I to gain the foundation of repentance from dead work and our faith towards God. That's what the, my little children for whom I labor and birth again. He's having to give them the first principles over and over again until they come to Christ. where they should already been there. That's why he's laboring in vain for having to
1: give them the first principles over and over again. You make an excellent point, Mr. And That was somewhere else I wanted to go in my notes. and uh, I have a couple minutes, so I will make that point. I appreciate your reference in Hebrews six one. Um, I'm going to read that again just for the mic, but therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And he goes on to say in verse two, and the and in the instruction about washing is the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And he goes on to kind of make the rest of his point there in Hebrews, but the the heading for my section is warning against apostasy. And it's interesting because he links these ideas of spiritual maturity and apostasy the same way Galatians does. And it says, look, um, I think it was one of the biology classes. They said, you know, sharks, I don't know if you know this about sharks, they gotta be constantly swimming or they'll sink. Have you heard that before? I hope that's true. I think I remember from a book. I'm not 100% sure. There's a reason I'm a minister, not a biologist, I guess. But they said they gotta keep swimming or they'll sink. And I think the same is true for our faith to, to the point Mr. Howell's making. Um, If we are not growing in our faith, we are dying in our faith. And, I mean, you think of that illustration that Jesus uses all the time. What is is he going to do with the the branches that are dying? He's going to cut them off. And uh, to to your point, you're right. The reason the Galatian church has fallen away is because they've not matured in their faith. Something we talked about here before, and I think this is probably more related to the reason, that first discussion we're having about evangelism was hard. I bet this discussion about spiritual maturity is probably closer related to that than we want to admit. But it probably shouldn't surprise us that so many people think poorly of Christians when I just know so many Christians that are not growing and maturing in their faith. So the simple fact of the matter is, if, if we really believe what we see in Galatians and what we're talking about, that if we're not changing people, the world is changing people, and then if we're not changing people, well, they're only getting changed by the world. It's not a wonder we're losing the battle, right? And so, uh, in some way or another, it should serve as a cautionary tale for us that, you know, Paul was perhaps the, the, the one of the greatest evangelists the church ever had. I hesitate to say, ever. I guess I don't know all of them. But we, we saw the work he did and the great things he did, the amazing teachings that he had. And if... If he spoke at a church, and that church failed to mature in their faith because they were led astray by influences, it ought to tell us anybody can. You know That there's, there's really no—we should never get comfortable, we should never get lukewarm in our faith. I had a couple more things I wanted to get to. I don't think I have the time to start new conversations. Is uh, there any other comments or questions on verse 8 through 20? Well, if not uh, we'll go ahead and put a pin in it for there I'm showing a couple minutes to the next bell so we'll leave a little